Welcome to the Breaking the Cybers podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. Today, we're chatting with Neve Drawer, who currently runs social at Product Hunt and does their daily newsletters featuring the latest and coolest products. Prior to tech, Neve shifted from soccer to academics, majored in finance, and worked with some of the top VC and hedge fund managers. It wasn't until witnessing the power of Twitter and having an online interaction with Chris Saka did Neve decide to get off the finance path and break into tech. In this episode, Neve talks about how he leveraged blog posts to meet the who is who of Silicon Valley, how to craft powerful cold emails, and a brief walk through his journey into tech, guided by his North Star of offering value without expecting anything in return. Over the last few months, uh, we've had an amazing outreach from you, our fans, asking for specific next steps you could take to break into tech. We'll listen to you guys and put together the Breaking the Startups 5-step challenge. If you go to breakingthestartups.com forward slash challenge, you can learn all about the challenge and the instructions. The main objectives of the 5 steps is to get you connected with others who have similar backgrounds and interests and learn how to build relationships with people in tech who will become your biggest advocates. As always, give us your feedback by dropping a review on iTunes. It's not only the best way to tell us and our team what you think of this podcast, but it will also help us tailor the episodes to what you, the audience, wants to hear. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10x. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Argentino Meister. And this is the Breaking the Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so today um, we're recording this episode out of App Academy. We're sitting in their office in Selma on the 14th floor. And Hack Reactor is not the only place that has students studying past 8 p.m. There's a lot of students now uh, studying their little cubicles for uh, the next day for the exam at, at App Academy. And uh, we're sitting here with a very special guest, and we're about to start this journey on how he broke into startups. Arthur, please introduce the guest. Thanks, Timur. So I'm super excited to have Neve Drawer on the show tonight. You may have seen some of his work from his prolific blogging on Medium. He has a number of really popular blog posts. One of them is When Exponential Progress Becomes Reality. He also runs social at Product Hunt and does their daily newsletter where they feature the latest and the coolest products. Neve is also a rockstar soccer player. He majored in finance in school and then ended up working in accounting for some of the top hedge funds and VC firms. And then while he was doing that, he made a really interesting transition to startups. He has wrote about that transition in his blogs, and he literally met the who's who of Silicon Valley. So um, before we begin, Neve, uh, please tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where it all started. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, for sure. Welcome. So I grew up in Israel and moved to Sunnyvale when I was 10. Just because I grew up here does not mean I knew anything about uh, Silicon Valley or tech. It's just a place that I moved to. And uh, I was playing soccer the whole time. That was something I did in, in Israel, a very popular sport there. And uh, that carried on to the States. So basically all throughout high school, I was spending all my time playing soccer, taking like 15 balls to an empty field and kicking when I was not practicing with the team. And um, 
yeah, college was not, or studying or school. I wasn't really taking school that seriously. Yeah, so what kind of high school did you go to? What were you studying in high school? I went to Homestead High School, which is the the high school where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak went to college, went to high school, used PCs, not Macs. In uh, high school, I was not studying much. Yeah, I I did it in, well, it's kind of weird because I finished high school in three years. It was kind of an early path where you take more classes and you, you get out early. But what I was really studying was not a big focus at the time. So tell us a little bit about kind of what kind of student you were and did you know what you want to do like once you get into college? It wasn't something I was thinking about. It was, it was, uh, I was playing soccer all the time and I knew I was doing three years and I was going to transfer to a two-year community college and then transfer from that to a, a university. That was like the path I was on. So colleges or taking the SATs or anything like that wasn't really on my radar until like a year after uh, community college started. Got it. Got it. So, you know, so you, you weren't really focused in high school. You were passionate about practicing your athletic abilities. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the moment that got you to focus a little bit more on academics? Yeah. So in college, that, that completely flipped. So in, it went from so all my dedication to soccer and the time I spent doing that went to studying and reading and, and trying to, to get perfect grades, basically. It was a complete shift. And what happened was when I was starting college, I was I was in my car going to, to play, and then I end up flipping it. I, I, I was trying to drift, like the movie Tokyo Drift. I, I saw the movie recently. And then an incident happened where I kind of messed up, and, and the car ended up landing on the roof, and that was a, a big shock. Yeah. So, so it sounds like that was a pretty big wake-up call for you. Um, what was your next step? So that was a big wake-up call, and then also, and that, that was more getting lost. It wasn't like, okay, flip a car, start to learn. It was, it was that, which caused more of a reset. And then the combination of my cousin, who, who also went to UC Santa Barbara, where I went to school, and him coming back for the break and seeing his like, report card, his, his grades, and it was all straight A's. And I've never seen that. So it was more of, and me and him were always very competitive. So then once I saw that it's possible, the thing to actually get all A's, it was, like, it was weird to look at, just very clean kind of all A's, which I've never seen. That's when I started learning a lot and, and becoming more interested in school and, and learning the entire time. Got it, got it. And so you get this huge academic focus and you're passionate about a few things. Uh, what did you decide to major in and why? So I decided to major in business. There wasn't too much thought going into it. It was more of I, I like business. I wasn't going to English, for example, I wasn't particularly interested in. I wish I did STEM or something engineering based or physics maybe, but those subjects were just not top of mind. It was more business looks interesting. I like those classes. Let's major in that. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And uh, also, I, I don't think you mentioned it yet, but in the pre-interview, you talked about kind of the role your parents played in your upbringing and that you were the first uh, child to go to college. How did that work out? And uh, how did that impact your decisions uh, of what you're going to study in school? Yeah. So that led to advantages and disadvantages. The, mm-hmm. It put me at a disadvantage, you could say, at the beginning because college was just something that wasn't spoken of. So like my friend, for example, when I was in high school, mm-hmm. told me, hey, I got into Berkeley. I'm like, cool. Like it, it just it flew right past me because I didn't know what that meant. You know, it's a good school, obviously. And so I didn't know. College was not something I was thinking about and it was mm-hmm. never discussed. And it wasn't a goal to achieve. It was, it was just not something that was spoken of. It put me in, adva- in an advantage that once I got into college because I didn't, I 
I think one of the biggest advantages I've had in my career was not having to pay for college myself, which means that I was in debt after college. And later on, we'll talk about it, what I was doing, but I was basically, I, I was able to take a year where I wasn't getting paid or working at a particular company. And I was just doing stuff that was, it was like the most effective year of my career in terms of learning and building a network. But I could not, in, I couldn't have done that if I had debts and kind of a... College loans. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So take us back to, you were talking about being in college, studying. Uh, did you have any internships in college? Uh, did you know what you wanted to do after college? Take us back to that moment. So in college, I, people in, so I was doing the economics and kind of like an accounting major in Santa Barbara. That was the closest I could do to business. That was the business major. And people in that major from either from high school or from definitely from freshman year, when they started to do that, starting to do the accounting classes, they get in, put into this competition where you need to get an internship at the big four firms. Nobody really went, like the person who started the finance club at the college maybe went to an investment bank, but nobody really goes to Goldman Sachs or it was, you pretty much go, that school is like a feeder school for the big four. And that's the kind of the competition you get put into. That's the, that's the goal besides getting grades. That's mm-hmm. the ultimate goal. So I got put into the competition a bit late. So mm-hmm. people do that from freshman year. I did not know what the big four was until my junior year of college when I was in UC Santa Barbara. And that's like a month or two away from when they actually started to interview for those internships. So from then on, everything I did was learn about them, learn how to interview. I was, I was kind of realized late that I was put into this thing. That's what everyone around me was supposed to do. And then I ended up getting, I, I, I knew how to interview very well and I definitely prepared a lot. So I ended up getting the Deloitte internship, which was good and bad. It worked, it worked out okay. But long story short, I was the only one in the whole, Let's just say once you get the internship, that means you have, you get the full-time offer, which means you're set, your college career changes because you have a full-time job when you graduate. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of pressure off you. And again, if you have the internship, you get the full-time job. Nobody not. So I was the only one in my internship class of 30 or something that did not get the, the, full, the full-time offer. Yeah. And you, you told us why. I think it's important for our listeners to realize uh, some of the reasons why you didn't get it. Yes, I was very underprepared. Again, I knew how to interview well, but I didn't really know Excel well. That, I guess, did not... I don't know how that didn't get brought up in the interview, but yeah, I was kind of behind. And also, the major thing was I was very young. So I graduated high school at 16, and I was doing the internship at, at 19, just turning 19. And a big part of that was team building and bonding and going to drinks and going to the Giants game and going to drinks. Drinking is a big part of those things. And I could never attend those events. So I was both behind from the skill level kind of getting myself into it and also i couldn't really bond with people so it made sense for them not to, to take me which is one of the hardest things because you definitely feel like a failure when you were literally the only one who didn't get it but it worked out for the best because later on i got the rosting cast internship um, i mean full-time for mm-hmm. after my senior year which is the most relevant thing to what i want to do so my senior year i was learning about hedge funds i did my senior thesis on hedge funds i was reading all these books about wall street and Rossin Cass is, is a firm that specializes in auditing hedge funds. And later on when I joined VC funds. So I was doing I was doing the closest thing I can to what I want to do, which even like even in investment banking, that's because they want to go to hedge funds after the investment banking. So I was kind of skipping a step almost and going directly to that. Yeah. And so uh, you graduated, everything worked out for a reason. Yep. And you are at this hedge fund working with also venture capital firms as well. Tell us a little bit more about that experience and how it led to what you were doing next. Yeah, so 
my first year I was I was um so I wasn't at the hedge fund. I was working with many different hedge fund clients who were relying on Rossinkas for auditing them. They and so that's a set career path, right? Yeah. So you do that for three years and then you go work for the hedge fund as like a controller or accounting position. Some people go in an investment role, but it's rare. So it's but you it doesn't matter. You get to work at the hedge fund, which is kind of the ultimate goal. That was absolutely the set path, which is why my first year I I kind of strategically set myself to sit next to the Bloomberg machine, which was amazing once I figured out how much they pay for that thing each each uh, month. How much? So, Just yeah. for our listeners. Is it, is it like 20000 a year? Or yeah, it's pretty expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, like, mo- a month or something. 20000 a month. Yeah, it's, very no, no, it's not a month. It's not a month. Uh, I think it's a couple thousand <laughs> a month. No, it's, it's a very high price, and you did something to, to take advantage of your Yeah, position. so I was doing... I was on the Bloomberg thing the whole time. I quickly learned what it was. I was spending Saturday nights at 2 a.m. pricing random securities just to learn it. It was really cool. It was, it was kind of, I really felt like I had a, an advantage of being next to it and access to it. So I just was like, I really enjoyed being on it. And then that led to leading that pricing team within a year, which means there was like one Bloomberg machine within t- all the West Coast offices that they like sent pricing requests to the San Francisco office. I was the one. And everyone splits that burden. But I was like, hey, can I do your thing? Can I do your thing? Because it was like an, an opportunity to use it. So I got pretty good at that. And then kind of hit the, the learning curve on hedge funds a year, a year and a half in, which is more or less the same time that VC clients were starting to come in because all the big four didn't want to do the VC clients because it wasn't effective for them for fees. So we got more VC clients. I got put on a VC client, didn't know how to do VC. It's like relearning everything. And you're like more like you're back in the first year, basically. And, my be- first- and before doing VC, you did something for your team related to the Bloomberg clients. What did you do? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, it's different and the same every time. So it's different. So basically what I was doing is every time there was something very hard that you can memorize how to do, how to do the valuation on using the machine, I kind of kept those examples and that turned into a, a book that was distributed across the whole firm or the various pricing teams in the firm of how to do valuations of like different derivatives and options and swaps and bonds and yeah, it, that was one of my proudest moments of, of working there. It was fun, awesome. yeah. So that was kind of like your first step to being a writer and sharing value to other people based off of what you learned. Yeah. Then you got into VC. And so this is a big moment for your transition into tech. So tell us a little bit more about that. So I was put on, I was I was more filling in on a client called Lowercase Capital at first, which was my first thing on VC. I'm like, sure, I'll do it. And it looks different, but I guess I'll learn. I really liked hedge funds at the time. I did not know what VC is. So... That fund, lowercase, had interesting companies like Twitter and Uber and, and Instagram. Before and it, anybody knew about them. Yeah, and Instagram just got acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars. I'm like, oh, cool. That, that makes the valuation easy. We know the price now. <laughs> but then that led to learning more about venture capital and being interested in it. And then off the cuff, someone mentioning, oh, you're in lowercase. That's Chris Saka's fund. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and, then, and then he's like, yeah, look him up. He's like really big. I'm like, okay. Oh, wow. A million followers on Twitter. That's interesting. So then that led me, led me to Googling him later. And and watching his Pendo Monthly, and which is a, an hour and a half long fireside chat that he talked about all his background and how he got started. And that, expo- that basically exposed me to tech, to what tech is, to startups, to a lot more videos. And I was kind of hooked. And eventually that led to me leaving. Well, I wrote in, the, in a post of how I started. It was kind of silly to mention, but mention him, I, I took Uber for the first time because it was part of the i learned about uber from aud- auditing uber auditing lowercase and then i took uber for the first time before anybody, anybody was using it everyone was still using like cabs to get home from the office i tried it what once. year was that 
this is 2011. Okay. It was starting. Early it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. uncommon. It was like something like you heard of, but you never actually tried. Yeah. But I, I, let's try it. And then it was a really cool experience. It was like magical. So I tweeted at, at Chris and, and uh, Travis, the CEO of Uber. Amazing experience. Just use Uber. And Chris, like he does with every tweet, this is nothing special. He just favorited the tweet. So that was like, oh my God, he favored when he, he saw, to me, that meant something different. So to me, it was like, he uses it as a senior tweet, which is how most people, a lot of people use favorites. I saw it as he knows me now, you know? <laughs> so I like took a screenshot of it and everything. It was like, and, and like a year later, sent it to him, which is like really embarrassing. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but that showed me the power of twitter which is twitter has been a very 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 key thing of me connecting in, in silicon valley and and in meeting people and learning and like obviously leading to blog posts and just knowing a lot more about the tech industry and i i, I credit me staying on twitter unlike just it dropping off and not really getting the value by him seeing my tweet and favoriting it so that was a really key influential moment yeah and so you are, you know, getting really excited about tech. You're tweeting people. You're writing things. You're getting favorited. You're favoring other people. But you're still working at this venture capital situation that you had. What led to you making the jump to leave? Yeah. So just around that time, my friend was starting a company called iBreathe, which is a sports technology company, a startup that was one, a startup, and two, was involved in soccer and sports. So that led me to leaving, leaving, well, First, I'm just doing work for him, like doing financial modeling and whatever I, I can from my very limited knowledge, my finest knowledge. I had no startup knowledge then to helping him. And then eventually to leaving and to work for him. Not that, I was like really naive at the time. It was, there's no way I would have left to do that if I'd known much of anything. But for example, I didn't have a contract. I never once got paid by the company. I moved to Huntington Beach for the company, which is a really nice three months vacation until I left the company. So in your, uh, in the, interview you mentioned that there was a year that you took off uh after college where you learned the most yes yeah, so was that this year or yeah, was that, that was after leaving after not immediately after college that was after working a year and a half and then more mm-hmm. or less and then doing three months of the company yeah and i was in a very very structured path it was accounting getting a c oh yeah i got a, my three months after i graduated i was i, I passed all the cpa parts of the cpa exam I this was, was at like, 21 years old, right? Which yeah. is one of the harder, like one of it's the like hardest. The law, it's yeah. like the bar exam for lawyers. It was like, I was a CPA. Like, yeah. With license. I have like the, the plaque and everything. But I, not that I ever used it. And it's expired <laughs> now. But it's, yeah. I'm not going to renew it. They, I, it was funny when they asked for the fees to get renewed. I'm like, I'm not going to pay to renew this. But, and that's something I worked on on my ass off, you know, for forever. So, yeah. So it was a very, very set path. Got everything done early. Did the CPA. Got that out of the way. You do accounting for years and you go work for a VC. It was a very, 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 very set path. And then I just got off the train. Got off the path. You yeah, got off the got train. Off the train. Yeah. So in that startup was the key to doing it. I don't know. It takes a lot to leave and that was the thing that got me. Can to you leave. talk a little bit about what it took for you to leave? Because I'm sure some of your classmates were probably a couple of years into like what, either consulting or auditing and they were getting raises and promotions. And you probably saw that if you st- stuck around for another couple of years, you probably would have had a pretty stable job. Uh, so what made you leave and how did that make you feel? Being naive is what got me to leave. Is it, yeah. the, the more you know, the more, the more I would not have done this. But it was just cool to go work on a st- I wanted to do startups all of a sudden and that was a startup. Yeah. Um, so that, that's got, what got me to leave. And also, but even harder is, is leaving that startup three months in after you already got the path. So then that was like one of the hardest times when you got off the path and now I'm like moving back home. Mm-hmm. I have no income. And I just took, there was six months and I was just 
reading and like meeting people and not even trying to to find work or anything. Like six months after, then that's when I started looking for stuff that I may be able in, interested in. Which and that was influenced by watching a bunch of YouTube videos, a bunch of stuff about Naval and AngelList and the intersection of the the public and private markets. So based on my background, that's kind of what I naturally gravitated towards, which is AngelList and related companies to that. And so then I started apl- trying to work with those companies. How did it feel moving back in with your parents? It felt good. It was. There's nothing about it. I was just reading books all the time. It was. It was not. I wasn't ashamed or anything. It was just. It was very convenient. It was the only thing I could do. I wasn't going to move back to San Francisco at that time. Yeah. I wasn't worried about not having income. But a few months in, it was like there was a few months in. That's when like when the gap on your resume starts getting bigger, and eventually I'd like take off that I was no longer working for iBrave, you know, which was a few months after I left, obviously. But it's like once there was like. So people care and they don't care about LinkedIn, but like having that gap, that's something that's like always in your head almost. So that's when I started to get more urgency to find something. Yeah. And it sounds like you're a pivotal moment where you took a risk. It hasn't started paying off and you're uh, starting to get a little bit kind of worried. Time is ticking. Maybe you're psyching yourself out a little bit, but tell us about what you did next. And you mentioned in the beginning that you started writing a lot. Tell us a little bit kind of how you leveraged uh, blogging as a way to get your name out there, build out your social platform. Yeah, so f- first I, well, I, was, I was doing like two blog posts on Medium that didn't mean anything. It was just basically using the platform. But mm-hmm. the main thing I was doing is I started meeting a bunch of people and, and getting to know more and more people. And um, later on, emailing people, offering to work for free. So just like Chris Saka's thing where he favored my tweet, which showed me the power of Twitter. One of the first emails I sent was to Naval Ravikant saying, like, hey, I did this, I graduated when I was 20, I got a CPA, um, just GPA, whatever, willing to work for free at the end, which Derek and, uh, Anderson at Startup Grind told me to use that. He like literally spelled that out for me, just do boom, 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 willing to work for free. Used that same template, and Naval responded. He said, they're like only looking for designers and like engineers, but the fact that he responded was huge because was, that was like a really, really big thing because it showed that I could email people and they respond. So that led to emailing a lot more people. So I emailed... Danielle Morel from Mattermark, that was a relevant company. I had an interview there that got canceled the day before my interview because they already hired someone. Next week, I was meeting Bastian from the CEO of DataFox for the first time, which I ended up working for later. And those are companies that are doing private market intelligence, kind of the private Bloomberg almost, which is, again, very relevant to what I was doing before. And so with DataFox, Bastian was like, yeah, come. They were not looking to hire, but he was like, I'm like, I'll work for free. And... So we were working out of Stardex, the old Stardex office. Stardex is the Stanford Accelerator. So I got to work with a team of all Stanford graduates and MBAs and engineers. Um, How did that feel? That was great. That was me getting to interact with people that went to Stanford was really big for me at the time. It was, yeah, I was very proud of that, you could say. And I was doing like very rudimentary kind of data, organizing data and cleaning up data to when I overheard them say, we're going to do a blog. What are we going to do? I'm like, hey, I could write. And I'm like, I couldn't really write. I, I was saying that based on doing two Medium posts that didn't really got like 300 views or something. But that led, okay, yeah, let's do do writing. So our first thing was a block. I was taking notes from Nova, of a video that Naval was doing about the, the current state of startups. And I'm like, hey, let's formalize this, these my notes in Evernote, to a formal blog post. So we did that. And I got in, I, I was, uh, I emailed it to Naval like, before we published because now we knew each other because I already emailed him before, right? So, <laughs> so he's like, yeah, just just change this one thing and then you're good. Which got him invested in me t- 
tweeting about when I tweeted about it, I wasn't surprised. He already he was he already read it. So then he like retweeted it and got like a bunch of expo- got a bunch of page views and they were very impressed. And I didn't know I could do that. What was the blog post called? The current state of startups. Interesting. We'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And then something else that you explained, like when you were reaching out to a lot of people and offering to work for free, that advice came from something that Chris Saka said as well, right? Yeah. So one of Chris's main themes and in, in what he talks about in many interviews is one is um optimized for learning rather than earning so earning was never something i was that was not a ver- still to this point it's not a variable in my decision to accept or not because i believe that's going to come later on and now it's more more thinking about it but at the beginning when you're just starting out that's just, it doesn't it's immaterial at that point mm-hmm. and then the big thing is offer value without expecting anything for return in return and that's like my north star it's and that means just just do just do and help people and and don't like if I reached out and said hey I'm willing to work I'm I'm gonna be cheap like I'm I'm only gonna take like minimum it doesn't matter just say I'm I'm willing to work for free people are gonna want to pay you people feel bad people want to pay you you're never gonna work for free if people let you work for free for uh, for too long it's probably people you don't want to work for free for yeah so yeah. they end up so paying you're you making them an offer they can really refuse because you're proactively yeah. re- researching their companies or re- reaching out to the founders and you're saying hey i'll even do this work for free yeah and it showed value like the, they got, were really impressed because they saw that i could talk with someone like he responded and that he he got a lot of exposure based mm-hmm. off the it showed them that i could add value which led to us repeating that process several times like we like we did a a video, a notes from the videos you didn't have time to watch series or something like that, where I was about watch videos, take notes, make them into a blog post, and then same process. And, and for those of you though that don't know, I met Neve at DataFox when I first moved to San Francisco at Stardex. And part of the reason why I focused on healthcare and education was because of the post that you wrote annotating Mark Andreessen's post where he was talking about healthcare and education. Amazing. Yeah. So really awesome. And then Talk a little bit about how you left DataFox and like the crowning achievement from a blog point perspective, how, you know, that process went and then what led to Meerkat and then Product Hunt. So after about a year or so at DataFox, I got to a point where they were going to a B2B route. It's a business to business. They sell to organizations. They don't optimize much for social. That's not a big priority. I did not wasn't really interested too much in that and kind of graduated away from and I did I did my work there and I kind of there was no role for me there because again they were never hiring for my role it was kind of turned I kind of ended up working there so I ended up leaving in December of 2014 I think and it was December I remember December because it was right before Christmas it was kind of a mutual understanding ish <laughs> and um and then I wasn't sure what I was what I wanted to do again so and eventually that led to yeah, so I knew I was really interested in space and that from videos that I was watching and stuff. So I'm like, let's let's learn about space. So I was like reading about space. This is like really random, right? So read about a lot about space, ended up for, um, helping a friend out who builds satellites in NASA Ames in Mountain View, which is really close to where um, I was living and did that for three months and still deciding what I want to do or well, thinking. I, I didn't know what I want to do. So two things happened in those three months. One is that that led to me watching a video of... of um, of Ray Kurzweil talking about exponential progress, which was fascinating to me. And, and I was watching more videos. I read his book. This is in, in a three-week period. I ended up learning about Ray Kurzweil and, and how fast exponential progress of, of, and how fast technology is advancing. He basically thinks the this, this singularity is going to happen in, let's say, by 2040 or something like that, which means that AI is going to get so advanced that 
it's going to be beyond our realm of kind of we can't comprehension. So then I spent three weeks learning about Ray Kurzweil and, and learning about exponential progress and how fast technology is advancing. And that led to a blog post that now that I still get mentioned on like almost, I think, a thousand recommends on Medium or something. But it was really important for me because I learned about exponential progress and, and the singularity, and I could, I could talk very clearly in, about that topic. And it's a fascinating topic to learn about. And not only to, at the time, I felt like, what am I doing spending so much time learning about it? But now I'm like, that was a very productive two weeks and, and two or three weeks. And that also led to me showing Ben from Meerkat, that blog post, which helped me get the job at Meerkat. Later it on. also got your name known in general and people wanting to know who wrote it. So you yeah. had like a value for yourself. Yep. So for people who are, I think people always get advice like, yeah, start blogging or start telling your story. And a lot of people kind of brush it off like, hey, I'm going to publish this and my mom and like a few of my friends will read this. What kind of, how do you view it and what advice would you have for people who have that mindset? Always think from the reader's standpoint, like why, am, why are we reading this? I mean, you could spend and do a short blog post and just blog every day. But for me, it was more like, how am I going to, I just spent all this time learning about this topic. How, I'm gonna, how am I going to communicate that topic to someone who doesn't know about it, to me three weeks ago, and, and present in, in a way that flows very clearly and, and really educate someone on the topic. And you don't really have to come up with you don't have to be the thought leader or that comes up with the, the topics or has even a, an opinion on it. What I was doing is I was taking a bunch of sides of the story and, and summarizing it in a very fun way because that included a lot of My ad- addition to it was more bringing out the content and highlighting stuff with pictures and tweets that show that wor- weren't part of Ray's presentations but highlighted it with current events like Oculus or like let's say video graphics, how they were like, when, like you know, 40 years ago when it's like rectangles to um, now, which is like very real- photorealistic. So just having showing those comparisons here and there. And you, and you positioned the article well for your audience because you knew Twitter. It wasn't just like a random subject that you picked. You knew that like if you wrote this and spent time getting it right, it would take off. Yeah, and it didn't take off. So here's the thing. I published it. I was so like done with it, done with it already. It's like I published it Saturday at 11 p.m. That's like the worst sign to publish something. <laughs> and nothing happened, shockingly, right? So then I like DM'd it to a few people like, hey, Chris Dixon, what, what do you think about this? Or Mark, what, what do you, Mark and Jason, what, what do you think about this? And then Chris ended up tweeting it, which, yeah, definitely Chris Dixon gets credit for that thing blowing up because he tweeted it and then that led. How did you know Chris and, and Mark at that point? They, being enough on Twitter and responding to people. And, and from the Data Fox and, post, right? And from Data Fox, yeah. So and, you met them through Twitter, Never met either of them in person, actually. But, but you um, met them. You got kind of you yeah. build a relationship with yeah. them over with, Twitter. With Mark, I I don't know if that's when he followed me, but it was I wrote a I summarized one of his talks at Stanford, and um, the more you they see, and I had a guest post in Pando of, of Peter Thiel and what he thinks about the state of technology. Again, from video notes, which they end up picking up, and we end up publishing through them instead. So I remember him tweeting it. it just you get your name out. Like the more you're around and the more you can add value that's another form of adding value just summarizing stuff yeah yeah and yeah. a lot of I, I bet a lot of our listeners are probably using twitter for their personal use but you're just talking about specific steps that our listener can take to get in touch with uh some of these biggest icons like chris dixon mark and Jason, and uh actually build a relationship and have them follow you back so you can dm them and kind of go from there yeah and it takes time I'm, i mean i remember my early days of twitter it was very there was things that i wouldn't do now like you 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 come off very kind of clingy i guess i don't know you're not the more you're on it the more you kind of learn the subtleties and and what to do and 
and when to enter a conversation, when to just kind of stay. Like, Can you give an example? So if people, you don't know, if, if the three of you are having a conversation and you're in an argument or a discussion about something, and then I come and I don't really necessarily add a value to the point, I, I take something just relevant enough where I could have an excuse to talk to the conversation, but I lead it to something about myself or something that I wrote because I wanted to see it. People do that all the time, and I, like that wouldn't work. They're used in their conversation. You're not adding value to the conversation. You learn when to kind of... Do you, do you, can you give an example? Do you know yeah, yeah. Ruben, uh, give uh, us an example because you're, you're actually a pro at this and you've done um, stuff like this in the past and you've connected with Balaji and a number of other icons in Silicon Valley. Kind of, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, connecting with Neve actually started through Twitter as well, through one of his articles and just tweeting him back and forth. Usually you try to like tweet something that's relevant to the conversation or favorite something or retweet something. But to his point, if you see a conversation that's not relevant to you or you're not going to add any value saying something random is not going to be advantageous it's going to look like and you don't want to reply to me you don't want to reply to it's fine to like reply here and there yeah to the same person but some people like reply to every like if you tweet something you almost know they're gonna like say something yeah exactly and and it's more like in real life if every twitter is a lot like real life so you want to show that you're smart you want to show that you're funny you want to show that you're just there like absorbing what they said it's all all kind of different emotions or you want to make it feel natural you don't want to make the other person feel used and like continue to poke 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 it's just kind of like a from a time to time thing where they're like who is this neve guy that's like always dropping dope gems right yeah and then you see people fall eventually following you yeah it's like you like 20 times why is everybody retweeting this guy's post let me follow him back Mm -hmm. right and then you start having the conversation it gets deeper and deeper so you know that's what led you to meerkat right or so, how how did that work out meerkat to product so with Meer- i found out about meerkat on product hunt like everybody else in san francisco around that time it was a week where everyone's twitter timelines were live now stream and everyone was streaming so i was part of the hysteria just like everybody else and then i went to the launch conference so i started going to conferences by offering to live tweets i got in, i got a, i got press passes to conferences by saying hey i'll, I'll like so i asked jason hey I'll, I'll like live tweet and do vines and stuff from your event can I get a press pass? Sure. So then that got me. Uh, so I was like live tweeting in Meerkat in Meerkat in, in, in uh, sorry in, in the launch conference. In launch were you, were you tweeting from their accounts or from your personal? From account? my personal account. Okay. In so launch, you were also building your own brand. Yeah. As you were doing this. I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily thinking of it from brand. It was more like I get to go to the conference yeah. and uh, I'm gonna tweet anyway. Definitely cool. some brand building to that. But Meerkat, what I end up like Meerkatting. I was very uncomfortable being on camera at the time. So I wasn't even. I was not on camera. I was just putting my phone in like. And meerkatting actually the product on stage when the Eric was uh, Eric and Ryan set up stage first time I met well no I met them at Disrupt first time but the first time I kind of talked more to Eric and Ryan back then which I ended up later working with a product on right now but then at, at launch I met Mazio it, mm-hmm. launch was fun because we we met a lot of people for the first time in person from Twitter and meerkat was a thing that everyone, everybody was on so I actually have a vine of of Saka going on stage with Tony Hawk saying we're meerkatting on stage little did he know that. Periscope got acquired by Twitter a few days later, and he's one of the biggest investors in Twitter. And then he just stopped using it, which is really funny. That's the first time I met Saka, by the way, um, backstage. So say, hey, it's and I snuck back, snuck backstage because my press stuff did not get me there, but I wanted to go meet him. So I'm like, hey, it's Neve, and he's like, or I didn't say it's him, hey, it's me. And like he did not recognize me because my my profile picture was not did not look like me at all back then. And then he's like, oh, it's Neve. I'm like, oh, Neve. And then we like we talked five minutes. Little did I know that my my middle school hero, Tony Hawk, was behind me like the entire time. <laughs> and, then I, and then I met Tony like 
after that, right before they went on stage. That's um, awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. But then oh, a key point of me joining, I don't know if it was a key point in joining, but Chris was showing me DMs of Dick Costello. Like he's like, Dick, this thing's like blowing up. Mirka, this thing is like huge. He does not know Periscope is acquired already. <laughs> so then, so then I, I used the opportunity to get in touch with Ben Rubin, the founder of Meerkat, for the first time. Hey, Ben, I just saw Chris Saka's like DMs with, with, with um, Dick Costello. He's like, they're like, he's helping you or something. So that showed a ton of value to Ben because who's this guy reaching out to me, seeing, you know, hanging out? Uh, did you do Saka. it on Twitter, like in the public, or you did it in as DM. a DM? It's a DM. Okay. It's a DM. It goes down as a DM. Yeah. So then that was my first interaction with Ben. Yeah. And then a few days later, I, I asked Ryan Hoover, how do I, how do I like work for this guy? Because again, I have no job back then. Yep. I have a lot of like credibility around me, but I, I'm unemployed. <laughs> so. And you, at that time, you probably also had very little to lose. So like some people might think, well, if I reach out to this person and drop this gem, I might, my boss might find out. But yeah, in yeah. your case, you're like, hey. No, no, no that was my only so. thing. That was yeah. for, finally something interested me that I wanted to join. I still didn't know. I was still in the space mentality of I want to work for Planet Labs for SpaceX, mm-hmm. which I was in the middle of getting introductions to from my friend. From, so that changed course completely once Meerkat happened. So then I wrote a post summarizing how everybody's been using Meerkat for two days. This is a few days before South by Southwest. Emailed it to Ben. Within 24 hours, we had lunch in San Francisco. And this is when everybody's hitting up. Like he is, his phone's like blowing up. Him and Ryan, Ryan are cool, not Hoover. So we met in SF briefly and he's like, yeah, and then they're, they just decided they're going to go to South by Southwest. They did not plan on going, but everyone was telling me, you got to go, you got to go, because this, this is the thing that's happening in tech right now. So they went, I stayed back home, and we said that I'm going to do a blog post a day, summarizing, same blog post that I did before, just summarizing how people are using Meerkat at South by Southwest. Little did we know that first day of South by Southwest, it's a Friday, Twitter decides to cut off access to the API. So... Dang. That was like a very, very high-profile thing. The tech industry did not receive Yeah, and for those well. uh, listeners who may not know what Meerkat is and what their relationship was with Twitter, yeah. can you give us our listeners a little overview? So Meerkat's tagline was tweet live video. So you, you live stream video. It's like Facebook Live, like Periscope. You live stream to the world by pressing a button. The easiest, it's still the easiest way to like tweet live video. And everybody was using it at the time. They were one of the first companies to kind of... Lead, they were the lead. first one to get it right on social, which is how it kind of... They were live streaming us before, but they were the first one to usher that area of live streaming. And Twitter had the same idea through Periscope, which they acquired before Meerkat launched. The, the two companies definitely knew about each other, but that was not public yet. So then Twitter basically announced Periscope. People like Saka, for example, stopped using it. Twitter within a few days, like said they were cutting off access to the API, which means that your followers used to sync. If we followed each other on Twitter, we followed each other on Meerkat. So when you went live on Meerkat, I knew that when you're going live, that stopped. So later on, that was a problem. That was not a problem at first because everybody already followed each other. So you already had your graph set. So Southwest, Southwest was not affected by it. And, and it was, that was definitely the year Meerkat took over. Like Mashable held a parade in honor of Meerkat. <laughs> I was again. I was not there, but I was. It was the most insane time. Like Ben, Ben was calling. Like it was like a bunch of fire drills. A bunch of fire drills. I I wrote our first blog post, like announcing Meerkat to the world. Basically, me being there like two days. It was like a very very, and that was like a post that that was like a really good post. It was like it was announcing Meerkat to the world and saying that we're gonna persevere or after being cut off from the API. It was the first time Meerkat really spoke to the world. So I wrote that, and that was like an 
incredible month, two months, three months. It was, what did you learn while you were at Meerkat? Because you were there at a very special time. I learned community. I did not. So I became Meerkat's first community manager. I built the, the early community there, which is a very, very special community. I'm very, I'm still a good friends with those people that I were part of the community there. So I learned community building and little things like sending people shirts and how that makes them feel and how to grow that and and like the really like the and how to interact with customer support it was like all me like mm-hmm. you know. so i mean the whole team was doing a lot of things the, the engineering were like you know working 24 7 the thing was crashing here and there with ben and ryan i don't know how they survived so like they did not sleep for like three days because everybody was like hitting them up but as far as like interacting with the community it was in this customer support that was i kind of and it's a super important role right because you're almost the face of the company like if people are tweeting at you or if people are trying to reach out you're kind of the person the filter that everything has to go through or yeah. a lot of the stuff goes through uh yeah and, yeah and i was tweeting from the Miracle account which is kind of which was really different from product from product and i tweet like 30 to 40 times a day from that account with Miracle, if i did more than three a day ben was like dude stop tweeting what are you doing it was like very <laughs> curated okay interesting and but then, ben guess... but ben was really more because i was that, that became very quickly a very high profile account mm-hmm. which now i like I tweet from Product Hunt regularly. It's a big account, but I did not know how to do that. So at first I was asking Ben, like, is this okay to tweet? Or it was like, you know, struggling to like press tweet because I knew it was going to go to a lot of people. But that was a key thing to prepare me for Product Hunt. Yeah. Awesome. So how did you get Product Hunt again? So after a little more than half a year at Meerkat, they were kind of shifting directions to because Periscope happened and Facebook Live was an imminent monster, which it is. <laughs> it's amazing the reach they have. So I, I ended up leaving the company and Product Hunt was the only thing I was looking for because it was, I always loved the company. They happened to have a, a role for someone to do social, open up. So Ben, just like Ryan helped me get the job at Meerkat, Ryan Hoover from Product Hunt, Ben ended up recommending me to Ryan to go work for Product Hunt nice. after I left. So that was the only thing that I was looking for and I didn't interview. I just wrote like, spoke with Ryan and I wrote a, a document of what I was going to planning to do and that was it nice and uh tell our listeners kind of what typically like a role like social or a role like community made manager entails what you do on a daily basis what does your day look like there are two very different roles i learned so community manager you're you are dealing with you're talking to you to the users the whole time you are the filter to the company so with meerkat i was i felt like i was on i didn't really know how to explain at the time what i was doing i just knew that i'm I was talking to people on Twitter, on DM, on email, on, on the phone, on every platform, on Slack. I organized all our admins in Slack at the beginning. So you're talking to users and you're helping them solve the problems. You're highlighting the cool things they're doing. You're, there's a lot of bugs. So a lot of it was like reporting bugs back to the team and, and the feedback and how they're using it. And you're kind of that felt that you're talking to the users. And I always had the users in mind almost to a fault where like I was always on the user side, even like. Think of how a user would think as opposed to the company's priority. I should have done probably more of the other. But yeah, that was yeah, that was a that was a fun and difficult role. It got to a lot of people. With product hunt I'm doing social, so that's highlighting all the products and, and promoting all the products that are on there and that means doing the daily email, so promoting, you know, the, the newest it's um promoting all the products and on behalf of the users. So it's in I'm trying to stay away from the community part of it. Because there's enough on my plate. And here in Parkland, what impressed me the most is there's this entire community team. So there's a lot of people doing all the other stuff. Yeah, so you basically get paid for being on these platforms, interacting with uh, 
users and adding a ton of value. For our listeners, can you kind of say what fascinates you or what what makes social appealing to you? Because uh, I think a lot of people can relate to jobs maybe in finance or jobs as an engineer, but social, it's a very new role or a profession. So what about it appeals to you? From the product perspective? Or just from, like from a job perspective. Yeah, from a job perspective. Because let's uh, remind everyone, you're an auditor, you're an accountant, and then you made this 180 degree yeah, to n- nothing now being... I, nothing I learned in school or, or immediately after is related to what I do, mm-hmm. what I do now. Now what I like about it, well, I, I spent all my time on Twitter anyway, so it was a natural transition to to be to carry that to a role. And that's part of what I was doing in Meerkat too, but that was more like, okay, I should not be spending that much time on it. There's more critical things here. That's all I'm doing. So, well, I mean, that and other things related in different platforms. So whether it's e- emailing the, the entire, like all our email subscribers and, and promoting stuff or trying to get new guests for live chats over email or over Twitter, it's more enhancing and promoting kind of what we're doing oh and i learned how to make a, i make a lot of gifts that was like a, <laughs> yeah yeah that's it's super it's part of guilt. <laughs> and i guess uh, to take a step back so there might be some listeners who are considering following a similar path or breaking into a, a role as a social media manager or a community manager what advice would you have for them about where to start what resources to use and then how to approach getting a job in this field so those are easier both of those things i did not have like i had very limited experience with data fox running their social account but again that was no i was an analyst really mm-hmm. so and i was writing a lot but it's something that you can do if you're at least if you're familiar with twitter and you're already on twitter then it's something that you can offer for people to do for free because a lot of start startups are, that are starting especially if they're if they're kind of blowing up or they, they they're starting to have have a need for it mm-hmm. that's not necessarily what they hire first it's, it's a very kind of specific hiring need once they decide okay we need to hire someone to do this and it's usually too late so a lot of times it's the founders doing it or the engineers doing it and to have someone come to you and, and offer to do it for free or for for very low money it's only going to be very very little when you do this for free again if you if you're spending like months doing this for free it's probably not the right company because they're going to want to pay you at the end but it's it gets you in the door when you could at least approach it. Let me um, help you with this. Got it. And it sounds like if you um, identify a few interesting companies that you're passionate about, you start tweeting at them. You start following people they talk like products or people they recommend. You start tweeting at just kind of promoting their brand and connecting them with other people that might benefit their service. Then you'll start getting noticed, and then you could. Slow, reach out, cold email the CEO or cold email whoever is their marketing person and then just take it from there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And don't apply through the main, I've never applied through the main job application. It's There's no point. It's, Especially if you're going to be applying for a social media role, you should be yeah. using your skill set or your strengths, which would be social media yeah. too. Directly cold emailing is key and then it's much better if they recognize you either by name or you've interacted with a few times on Twitter or in person. That helps the cold email be received much better. And with our listeners, we talk a lot about writing a cold email that that's actually warm. So can you give them a quick breakdown of how do you craft this cold email to someone you've never met before? Yeah, so keep it super short. And then the first sentence, sentence or two are absolutely essential. So everything you need to communicate, which not necessarily don't ask what you want to do in the first sentence, mm-hmm. you got to capture their attention. So let's say, you're reaching out to an investor or a startup CEO or something, you got to start with, 
um, I read your I read your post or I saw your your keynote on this or something, and, and this had an effect on me because so something that is relevant to them now you've captured their attention, and then you could say something about yourself now you gotta like hype yourself up and sh- show them that they, you're someone that they want to continue mm-hmm. reading the email. So something about them, and then something about you, and then your ask, and all this should be in like three or four sentences. Yeah. And then, or if it's something that is like really, like it's a really cold email, it's almost, you could almost just email and say, Hey, I read your blog post. It had an effect on me because Neve, that's it. And then if they don't respond to that, they're not going to respond to your email. But if they respond to that, thank you or something, which they will, it's a really, you didn't ask them anything. It's a really easy thing to respond to. Then they're almost obligated to respond to your follow up, which is the second part of the email. So interesting. And you brought up follow ups. I know when I was applying for jobs, uh, I would send out a cold email and then a couple of days later I would follow up and then I would send another follow up. Did you find that strategy effective when you were cold emailing? I didn't send too many follow ups. It was more, I think I focused a lot on getting the first email right. Mm-hmm. And I know from people email me now, it's I'm, it's really bad because I need to respond. I know how much it means and, and I need to res- I respond mm-hmm. as much as I can, but it's more like you need to grab someone's intention, make it as easier. Don't make them put them off for later. If, if you're asking too much, they're going to say, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I'll come back to it in, in an hour and then a month and then they just forget. And then they feel fine deleting it, mm-hmm. archi- archiving it if, it if it's gone too long. You need to get their attention so they respond in the most minimal way on the spot. Mm-hmm. And then, but everybody always respond, not always, but it's much, much easier to get a conversation going once you got them to respond once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, actually, one of the things that I found was and I'll get sometimes I'll get people emailing me too, like a cold email, and uh, putting in that effort, like you mentioned, upfront. Like I'll, I'll, I can give an example that some uh, salesperson from AppDynamics he emailed me because he was trying to sell a product to Blipper, but he also went a couple steps ahead of any other salesperson and he took a screenshot of our app and he showed that he downloaded the app, he played with it, and then. I almost felt obligated to respond because I was like, this guy probably spent 10 minutes of his time researching the product that we're working on. And uh, that already shows a lot of value yeah. that he did. So yeah. adding value first, yeah. even that's actually essential for, because if you read their post, that's a form of adding value because mm-hmm. they want, they did something, they want them to read it. That's a, a tiny bit of it, but definitely don't ask without giving first, even if it's the most minimal thing, like reading a blog post they wrote or something. It just, it goes much smoother. Another key thing, both from especially for tweets and also for emails, is focusing on one thing. Let's say there's like, let's say you want a job and that's your end goal, but mm-hmm. you, there's also this thing, and you got to focus on one thing. Like one, they should have to respond to one thing. Yep. Don't never ask more than one thing. For more than one, people thing. ask three things, and they'll either not respond to anything because they'll feel like this is too much. I'm not going to do it, yeah. or they'll respond to one of your things. So you have to choose. Doesn't matter if two of things are. You have to choose one thing to get them to respond to. Awesome. Yeah. And on that note, uh, we're actually going to transition into the next part of our podcast, which is the lightning round. And this is the part where Arthur Rubin and I will ask you a series of questions and uh, try to provide short answers that are filled with strategies, tactics, any resources that you've used to get to where you are today. So with that said, Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So this uh, question takes it back to the basics. Imagine you're starting again from nothing. You just came to a new city. You don't know anyone, you only have $100, and you're trying to start again and break into startups. So what would you do and how would you spend that $100? That means you have to like have housing and everything on $100? So or? let's assume your basic needs are taken care of. Maybe you're crashing on your friend's couch for like a week. So let's assume that's taken care of, but you only have $100 to spend to get yourself ahead. And you're in a new city? 
Yeah. I would, I would not move to, I would not move to the new city. If you're starting from scratch, you need to, you need your network is a very, very key part of it, mm-hmm. both from your confidence, mm-hmm. from your resources, for everything. You got to maybe move there later, but you got to stay at the, your existing city. And from $100, maybe go to, don't even spend $100, go to YouTube. Like that's, YouTube is an unbelievable resource for anything you want to learn about and, and then leverage that too. Awesome. Got it, got it. So take us back to the time when you got rejected from Deloitte. What music did you listen to or a movie did you watch, et cetera, that helped you break through that feeling or that sad moment? Neither. I was reading. I think that's, that's when I was learning about a lot about clean tech back then, and I think that was a time when I got more interested in, in finance and Wall Street, and I was reading a lot of books about Wall Street and yeah, I was reading a lot back then. It was the summer, like before school started. And I started to learn Excel. That was like my number one takeaway. I need to learn Excel. So, so instead of feeling down uh, and uh, feeling bad for yourself, you just said, hey, I'm going to keep learning. That was like a week after I, I was yeah. very down. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So the next question is for um, our listeners. So you've gone through this amazing journey. You've transitioned from one field to the next to the next. What is one piece of advice that you have for our listeners who are thinking about breaking into tech? Good question. Finding a mentor that's within reach. So, for example, Saka was a, an inspiration to my journey, and but mm-hmm. we didn't really know each other, you know, until until later on. But that's some someone that's like too far away. Like I didn't, I never thought I was going to be in that position. But his intern, Adam Besnick, was. So I started reading Adam's blog about getting about he how he transitioned into from Jeffries to to a startup and then later on to become a VC. He's a VC right now. But and when I met him, he was the first person that met with me in San Francisco when I was reaching out to people. But he and at the time he was getting his MBA at Harvard. So but he agreed to meet because he was okay, he's an MBA student, what what does he have to lose? So he met with me. At the time he seemed very far away, but he told me, you know, we're not I'm only a few years ahead of you, which at the time seemed crazy, but now when I'm getting people reach out to me and I and, and I'm in that position it doesn't seem very crazy to me. So someone who's ahead of you and with a few years ahead of you, but just but within enough reach where you're, where you're not discouraged and you, you're inspired to, to follow on that path. Yeah, and those people probably have way more time than Chris Saka to actually dedicate to like learning about you, your story, and providing that advice, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so another question that we like to ask is, uh, you probably had a lot of beliefs going into this. So what's one thing that you fundamentally believe going into this process that you changed your mind on after going through this process being comfortable i have like a practical a more uh, philosophical one and oh, then a very practical one let's so hear both the first one is being comfortable with uncertainty so even though i got off that set path of accounting to working and from school arranging accounting to doing accounting to to working in a vc or hedge funds of, of a client it's a very very structured path which i think a lot of them are once you finish school, especially in those professional careers. I still try to like structure what I'm going to do then, but what ended up happening was it was more kind of letting things happen. And then when the right opportunity came, like data, like when, knowing when the opportunity comes and then and going all out to get it, that's not uncertain, just reacting to your environment. And I think you need to be comfortable with that. And then the more practical one is on Twitter. I used to, which I don't know if I've I'm still like back and forth on it, but I used to respond to everyone. My Twitter timeline used to be like a million replies and, and everything. Now, if you look at it, it's very, very curated. So it's more like an Instagram where it's, you're very careful about what you're, you're leaving on there. So for now, I'm doing that. We'll see if that stays. 
Awesome. And so what is uh, one, you dropped a lot of nuggets, but what is one resource that's available online, either a book or a video or a guide that you would recommend for listeners? So books definitely help. Uh, the one thing I'd recommend though, if, if I have to choose one thing is YouTube videos, particularly the entire like startup grind series, like Derek Anderson, who, who interviews anyone who's anyone, like really, really good interviews from everyone in tech. Look at that. His latest conference from 2016 is full of like interviews with Mark Andreessen and, and Vinod Kostla and really, really good events multiple times a year. So those are really good things to watch. And Pendo Monthlies, they don't do them anymore. So, but the ones that I was watching then are really good. Harry Stebbings, let's give Harry a shout out. So Harry yeah. Stebbings at a... Shout out uh, Harry. Yeah, Harry has a podcast where he interviews people in VC. I recently started, I, I've, I was tweeting about it forever because he puts in a product on it, but I recently started listening to more of them and I listen to everyone now, all of them now. So yeah. Yeah, definitely check it out. And Harry is what, 19, 20 years old right now? Yeah, nobody knows he's like, <laughs> nobody knows he's nineteen until like, he um, he wrote this post where yeah. yeah so he's really young but he's super smart and yeah and he got a shout out from like Morgan Jason all the VCs like yeah. saying he's probably the most talented or most admired like VC in Silicon Valley <laughs> he's twenty yeah. years old and I and I asked him once that post came out I asked him if we can republish it on the product on Medium so I spent in a lot of detail reading his post again because I was publishing it through product on Medium which was very fun to give him that exposure. That's yeah. awesome. That's and I actually read that post and it was great. Yep, yep. Awesome. So we really appreciate you coming uh, on our podcast. For our listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to reach you? Twitter is absolutely the best way. Just because I say I don't reply anymore, I DM everyone who... I still reply, but just, I'll DM you. So Twitter is at Nivo. It's N-I-V-O-0-0. Um, look up N-I-V, Nive, and you'll see me. You can email me. It's inivedrawer at gmail.com or nevaproducton.com. Awesome. And um, just to give you a little uh, plug, you wrote a ton of cool blog posts on Medium. Uh, can you just rattle off a few of the titles that people could find you by? A much more, a version of this podcast that flows much better is on Medium, which is called The Three-Year Job Search and How I Got Into Tech, which summarizes this, this journey. And um, When Exponential Progress Becomes Reality is my favorite post, which is about Ray Kurzweil and, and the singularity and the rate of technology. And we'll definitely include those in the show notes. And thanks again for coming, man. This was a great story, and I'm sure our listeners found it inspirational. And we'll definitely have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.